Today marks the beginning of Holy Week. And of course, 2,000 years ago, this is the week that Jesus washed his disciples' feet, shared the Last Supper with them, was arrested by the authorities, convicted on trumped-up charges, and then, of course, crucified by the Romans before he was resurrected by his Father. I hope you'll be able to be with us on Good Friday and Easter. But today is Palm Sunday. Today is the day that Christians throughout the centuries have set aside to celebrate the time that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Now, by entering Jerusalem on the back of a donkey on the days leading up to Passover, Jesus is making perhaps his strongest claim yet that he was the Messiah. He was God's true king. Jesus entering into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey was nothing short of a political and revolutionary statement. See, the claim that Jesus was making on that Palm Sunday that he was the king is the same claim that will get him crucified a few days later. I hope that you have not tamed Palm Sunday. I hope that you have not tamed Jesus. I hope that you have not tamed your faith. But to see the the radical uh, nature of Jesus' claim, the radical nature of Palm Sunday, we've got to get into a time machine together, go back to the year 30 AD, and the place we're located is Jerusalem. The Passover is soon approaching. Jerusalem is swelling with people as those who live in the countryside are coming inside the city near the temple to celebrate the Passover, which is the Jews' most important holiday, because that's the day that they celebrate that God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. Now, in Jerusalem, as the crowds are swelling, as the people are coming into worship, There's a rumor that is circulating throughout the city. The rumor is he is on the way. The rumor is that he is approaching the city. The rumor is that he is here. Uh, Families, they stumble to get prepared. The city officials clean the streets and sweep the temple. His presence demands it. His followers love it. People line the streets to see the royal entourage. The crowds watch with anticipation as Pontius Pilate rides into Jerusalem. You see, from 26 AD to 36, for that decade, Pontius Pilate served under the emperor Tiberius as the Roman governor of Judea and Samaria. Now, we don't know a lot about Pilate's personal life, but we do know that he was married educated, wealthy, and his family was connected to other important and and noble families in the region. Now, he is the regional governor of Judea and Samaria, and that means he has three main responsibilities. He oversees the military, he oversees the judiciary, and he oversees the tax collection system. Rome's main job for Pilate was to keep the peace and to keep the tax money flowing from there into Rome's coffers. Now, Pilate didn't live in Jerusalem. Instead, he lived out on the sea on a beautiful home in a city called Caesarea. It was a royal city getting its name Caesarea after the Caesar. See, Pilate only came inland when he absolutely had to. 
he didn't like the Jews much, and he didn't like their city, Jerusalem, either. But every year, as part of his obligation to Rome, as part of the responsibilities of his job, he would take his forces and move into Jerusalem, especially in the days leading up to the Passover. See, Pilate recognized that if he showed up with a big force of troops, it would quell, it would uh, silent any people inside Jerusalem who are thinking about rebelling against Rome. See, Pilate doesn't like the Jews, but the feeling is mutual. They don't really like him much either. He had taken money out of their temple treasury and used it to finance his building projects. There was a time when Pilate was in Jerusalem when the crowds were surrounding him that he ordered his troops to take clubs and beat them until they were either dead or they were uh, withdrawing. You see, you didn't have to like Pilate, but you did have to respect the authority that he represented. And so when Pilate enters into Jerusalem, he does it from the west side. He enters the west gate and he rides in on a majestic stallion. He's surrounded with officers and soldiers representing all the power of the Roman Empire. He parades into the city with the cavalry officers on horseback, with the foot soldiers decked out in armor and helmets and, and weapons carrying the banners of Rome. If you had been there, what you would have heard, the sound that filled the city was the marching of troops, the creaking of leather, the beating of drums. The onlookers, well, some were curious. Uh, many were awed. Almost all were resentful. On the other side of the city, it was a completely different kind of parade, a very different kind of entrance into Jerusalem. Jesus had ridden a donkey about a hundred miles down from Nazareth into the city. He entered through the east gate on the other side of town. His followers were an unimpressive lot, mainly peasants. When he got near the city, he was greeted by the people who were already there. They picked up palm branches and started waving them. Some took their coats and put them down on the ground in front of the donkey that carried Jesus. See, on that Palm Sunday, you had two very different kinds of parades, two different very visions of power, and two different theological perspectives. Theological perspectives in Rome? Absolutely. See, Pilate's parade, it didn't just represent Roman imperial power. It also represented Roman imperial theology. And in Roman theology, the core tenet was this. The emperor was not just the ruler, but he was also the son of God. See, when Caesar Augustus, the first what you would call official Caesar, came into his position, he named his then-dead father, Julius Caesar, named him to be a god, which was very convenient for Augustus because that made him the son of God. And there are inscriptions all over Rome saying that the Caesar is Lord, the Caesar is Savior, the Caesar is the one who brought peace. In fact, Roman theology said that upon his death, Augustus ascended up into heaven. So when Jesus comes and claims the titles of Lord, Son of God, Savior, Bringer of Peace, the one who ascended to heaven, he is taking the titles that first belonged to the king of Rome. And in doing so, he and his followers were making a very specific claim. 
that Jesus was the true king, not Caesar. I mean, making that claim that Jesus was the true king, not Caesar, Caesar, saying that publicly is the kind of thing that could get you killed. Now, why is it that you think they killed Jesus? I bet some of you think that they killed him because he went around talking about love and peace and joy and to forgive other people, love your enemies, love your neighbor. You think Rome cared? Rome could care less people going around saying that kind of stuff. Rome didn't kill him because of that message. They killed him because he claimed to be a king and therefore a rival to Caesar. Jesus' mission, Jesus' message from the very beginning was revolutionary. Is there anything revolutionary about your faith? Is there anything revolutionary about the way that you follow Jesus today? Why not? Why isn't there anything revolutionary about how you follow a revolutionary king? See, Jesus' parade, when he entered in Jerusalem, was, was deliberately countered, countering Pilate's parade. Pilate's parade, he embodied power and royalty and glory and violence and war. He went, ruled uh, the, in, in the kingdom that ruled the entire world. But Jesus' parade offered an alternative vision. Jesus' parade initiated the kingdom of God. But that rivalry between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Caesar, that helped define who Jesus was and his mission and what Christianity was all about. Because on that Palm Sunday, what we have is a story of two kingships. One built on fear and violence and one on love. One kingdom built on oppression, the other on freedom. One built on control and bondage, the other on liberation. See, in the other parade, the parade across town, the parade with unimpressive people, the parade of Jesus riding in on a donkey, he entered in through the east gate, which people who had read the stories of Israel knew that that was the gate that the Messiah was going to enter into someday. Matthew 21 tells the story. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, when Jesus rides in on that donkey, he's declaring that he's the king that all the Old Testament prophets had spoken of. But when he rides in on the donkey, he's also saying that he's coming in in gentleness, that he is a different kind of king than they expected. He is the humble king. The people, as I've already told you, grab palm branches and they start waving them, take off their coats and they lay them down in front of the donkey. See, Jesus declared that he was the king, but he was a different kind of king. Here's how they responded in Matthew 21. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heavens. Hosanna means Lord save us. Those palm branches they waved, they didn't just pick them up because they were convenient, as if they were just lying around and couldn't find anything else. Those palm branches had specific meaning in that culture. 
See, in the century before, the Jews had been free, not for long, but for a very short period of time. And they took palm branches as a symbol of their political freedom, and they put them on their own coins. So here are a, a coin, the front and back of a coin that, that uh, the Jews were able to print themselves when they were in charge of their own territory. And you can see, especially on the right, it's clear there that there's a palm branch that is on there. So you see the palm branch, it didn't signify peace and love and it's a pretty spring day. Spring is coming. No, the palm branch was a sign of Jewish nationalism. And when they waved those palm branches, what they were waving at them and saying is, we are calling for a revolution. See, they, the Jews wanted Jesus to be an earthly emperor who would take up his power, sit on the throne, and drive out the oppressors, drive out the Romans. What the crowds were trying to do is make Jesus into a warrior king. But when Jesus rode in on the donkey, he was showing that he came as a king of peace. They wanted someone to do battle against Rome, but he said he had come to do battle against sin and death. Jesus was not the king that they expected, but he was the king that every human being is needed. Oftentimes we don't see who our true enemies are. They thought their enemy was Rome. You and I might have a list of people that we think oppose us, but our real enemy, the one that we need deliverance from, is being oppressed by sin and death. And just a few days after Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey, they would end up crucifying him. They would end up crucifying God's king. Matthew tells us more. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put his staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. See, all this is done in mockery. They put on the, the king's robe, the scarlet robe that was reserved for the kings. They put a crown. Oh, you want a crown? You think you're a king, Jesus? Here, try out this crown of thorns. Oh, you think you're a king. So they mockingly hail him as king of the Jews. See, Matthew, nor Jesus, nor anyone is trying to hide the ball from you. They're telling you really clearly what Jesus was about, who he claimed to be, and why they killed him. In case you still haven't got it, Matthew tells us more. Above his head, so once he's on the cross, above his head, they place this written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. See, the Romans, when they crucified him, they thought they had killed him, but really they had crowned him. When, when they lifted and hoisted Jesus up on that cross, they, they enthroned him. Jesus is the dying king. Jesus is the humble king. Jesus is our saving king. He did not come to defeat his enemies, but to die for them. Now, is that how you think about your enemies? I mean, just step back and think, who are your enemies? Maybe there's someone in your family that has a, a broken relationship, has accused you of things. Maybe it's someone that you find as a rival at work. Maybe it's a political uh, uh, opponent. Maybe it's something on social media. Maybe it's those who hold a different set of values. Do you think of defeating or dying for them? Are you willing to take up that cross that Jesus bore? Because I think if we're just honest, we find that we kind of want to go to Pilate's parade. There's something inside of us that craves what Pilate's offering. There's something that says, I prefer that, to be frank. Because you see, Pilate comes in on a war horse, and I, and I want a war horse. Jesus comes in on a donkey. Pilate comes in in power. 
He knows powerful people. Jesus, he associates with the weak. We want to be vindicated in a courtroom, to be declared in the right. Jesus breaks bread at a table. We want to hold the power of the gavel to judge others as guilty. But Jesus, he washes people's feet. We want to take up a sword. Jesus says, no, you take up a cross. We want the empire. Jesus offers the kingdom of God. We want a nation. Jesus calls the church. We want Jesus to come as the roaring lion. But first he comes as the slaughtered lamb. Now can you imagine being in Jerusalem in 38 D? Right before the Passover, the crowds are swelling. You see Pilate enter. You see Jesus enter. And now you're going to believe that Jesus is the true king? The one surrounded by peasants? The one going to the cross? I mean, when you look at the cross, do you see a king? Or do you miss him? Because he's not what you expected. He's not what you want. A few months ago, Queen Elizabeth of England died and There are many great stories about her, including that she was a woman who sincerely followed Jesus. She's a woman who had great humility, who served for decades. But after she had died and people were telling stories, this is my favorite story. It is told by, I think this gentleman is the uh, the leader, or at least at one point, was the leader of her security detail. So let's listen as he tells this great story. The Queen used to go up there in May to... Krugowan House and just stay there privately for a weekend and she would go out at lunchtime for picnics and very often it would just be the police officer and her majesty and one of the picnics I went out with her we had a lovely picnic and a lovely chat and then we went for a little walk just the two of us and normally on these picnic sites you, you meet nobody but there was two hikers coming towards us and the Queen would always stop and say hello and it was two Americans on a walking holiday and it was clear from the moment that we first stop, they hadn't recognized the Queen, which is fine. And the American gentleman was telling the Queen where he came from, where they were going to next, and where they'd been to in Britain. And I could see it coming, and sure enough, he said to Her Majesty, and where do you live? (laughs) And she said, well, I live in London, but I've got a holiday home just the other side of the hills. (laughs) And he said, well, how often have you been coming up here? Oh, she said, I've been coming up here ever since I was a little girl, so over 80 years. And you could see the clogs thinking. And he said, well, if you've been coming up for 80 years, you must have met the Queen. I and as it. quick as a flash, says, well, I haven't, but Dickie meets her regularly. <laughs> <laughs> so the guy said to me, well, you've met the Queen, what's she like? And because I was with her a long time and I knew I could pull a leg, I said, oh, she can be very cantankerous at times, <laughs> but she's got a lovely sense of humour. Anyway, the next thing I knew, this guy comes around, put his arm around my shoulder, and before I could see what was happening, he gets his camera, gives it to the Queen, and says, can you take a picture of the two of us? <laughs> anyway, we swapped places, and I took a picture of them with the Queen, and we never let on, and we waved goodbye, and then Her Majesty said to me, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when he shows us photographs to the friends in America, and hopefully someone tells him who I am. Oh, <laughs> Dumb Americans. I mean, couldn't you see yourself in that position where you're up there and... She's not in the crown and, 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 and she's not sitting on a royal throne and you, you just don't recognize her because she looks so ordinary. If you miss out on meeting the Queen of England, if you don't recognize her, 
you regret it. But it doesn't have the same consequences if you miss seeing that Jesus is the king. They, he, he doesn't look like it at the moment because at the moment he's being beaten. At the moment he is being crucified. At the moment he is being mocked. It's hard to believe that Jesus is the king when he rides in on that donkey. I mean, there is Pilate in control of all the military and all the money. It takes eyes of faith to see that contrary to appearances, Jesus is God's king. But of course, it's the same today, isn't it? Because as we look around, it feels like all the forces against Christianity, all the forces against Jesus, all the forces that align themselves against the gospel, against God's values, they seem overwhelming. It seems like a hopeless cause. But then again, then again, if you lived in ancient Palestine, and you had gone up to anybody and said, is there anyone more important than Caesar? They would have all said no. Caesar and his throne were invincible. Caesar and his kingdom were indisputable. Caesar and his kingdom were believed to be eternal. But when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey on the first Palm Sunday, he is declaring there is a new king and a new kingdom and a new set of kingdom values. Because Caesar, he became king by force. Jesus became king by self-sacrifice. Caesar is obsessed with power and prestige and possessions. Jesus is obsessed with obeying his father's will. Because King Jesus is the only king who said he did not come to be served, but to serve. Caesar, he's got all these powerful Roman senators that he calls friends. Jesus says that he is a friend of sinners. Caesar rewards his friends and is ruthless to his enemies. Jesus, he challenges friends and is gracious towards his enemies. So when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, he turns all the values of this world upside down. He says, if you want to live, you've got to die to yourself. If you want to gain, you must lose your life. Jesus tells us that weakness is uh, better than strength. That if we have power, we should use it on behalf of the powerless. We should use our voice to speak up for the voiceless. That we should love those who persecute us and pray for those who hate us. It's because Jesus tells us when he rides in on that donkey that Caesar is not the true and lasting king. It's just not true that the wealthy and the beautiful and the powerful are the ones who inherit the earth. No, it's the meek and the lowly. Those who mourn, those who are persecuted, the peacemakers, the merciful, merciful are the ones who are blessed in the kingdom of God. See, those two kingdoms still war on earth today. One is led by Caesar and one still led by King Jesus. One is built on war and oppression, wealth and power, self-interest, control. The other is built on love and faith hope, freedom, grace, compassion, and truth. One demands sacrifice of you. One offers a sacrifice for you. See, 2,000 years later, 2,000 years later, no one gathers this morning to sing the praises of Caesar. 
2,000 years later, it's only historians who study Caesar and his kingdom, for it finds itself in the dustbin of history. But millions of people around the world, perhaps billions on this Sunday and Easter Sunday and every Sunday, will gather together to worship Jesus in the north and the south, in the east and the west, from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and those who lived in privileged countries where they can worship freely, and those who are hiding in house churches for the sake of their life, they are worshiping Jesus with their life in jeopardy. And yet they there, they are there this morning offering testimony that Jesus is still the reigning king. See, the, this Palm Sunday, the question that Jesus wants you to wrestle with, me to wrestle with, is who is king of our life? Jesus is the king of the world, but is he the king of your mind and your thoughts? In your calendar, in your kids, in your checkbook, in your career, in your words? Who is the king of your life? Pilate, he represents Caesar and all the power of Rome. Wealth and accomplishment and influence and power and money and beauty, status. If that's what your heart craves... If that's what's sitting on the throne of your heart today, if you would rather attend Pilate's parade, Jesus wants to start a revolution in your heart. He wants to start a revolution in your life. He wants to start a revolution among your values. Because when he rides in on that donkey, he declares something that is unmistakably clear, and that is that Caesar and Pilate and all they stand for are going down. And so he's telling us as he enters into Jerusalem, he's speaking to your heart and my heart today to not live to please Caesar, to not live with those kingdom values, to not invest your life and your energy and your emotion into propagating Caesar's kingdom. Because it will die, it will fade away. But King Jesus, his kingdom is eternal. See, Palm Sunday isn't about palm branches any more than Easter is about Easter bunnies. Palm Sunday is a revolutionary statement. It tells us that a new and better king rules and will one day establish his earth, his kingdom fully on earth as it is in heaven. Palm Sunday tells us that oppressors don't win and injustice doesn't triumph. That Caesar and all he stands for are going down because Jesus is building his kingdom. It's a kingdom of love and grace and truth. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Jesus, you are the true king and we bow and worship before you. You're the eternal king, the loving king, the saving king, the dying king, the humble king. And we want to give our life to you. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would take your rightful place on the throne of our heart so that you would reign and rule not just over creation and the nations, but over every part of our life. Jesus, we pray that our values would reflect your values, that our heart would reflect your heart, that we would be people who care for those who you love. Oh, Jesus, we pray that you would bring revival. May it start with us. May we all see through that you are king and there is no other. 
We ask all this in the name of the mighty King Jesus. Amen.